Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Droffolino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Rich. Uh, very glad we are not living in a post-apocalyptic future yet, but I hear that's on tap for September. <laughs> we're we're living in a during apocalypse uh, present right now, uh, which is really great. Uh, big thank you to Max Mortelaro, by the way, for stepping in and being the substitute Tom Hollingsworth last week. Had a lot of fun with him. But Tom, no one could ever fill your shoes. So we're going to get started with a little something we like to call news or not. This is where if there's just too much news or we you know we're not sure if it's it's hits the criteria for a full discussion we need tom's take if it is in fact news or not you ready to get going with this tom i am ready let's do this all right first up on news or not google launched a private beta of its certificate authority service this will store private keys in gcp's cloud key management service and features a rest api to let customers easily acquire and manage certificates the idea is to let organizations manage private certificates for secure connections and authentication at a scale not feasible if kept on an internal network, or theoretically much more difficult. This will compete with AWS's private certificate authority, and currently Azure doesn't actually offer a similar or direct competitor to this. Tom, news or not? I don't know that this is news because I don't know who's going to use this unless you just happen to be using GCP for everything. So, <laughs> yeah, it just, I don't, I, I, why do we have to have 95 certificate authorities? Pick two, stick with them, be evil and kick out the ones who are doing stupid stuff like Komodo. But I mean, I, I don't know ultimately what this is going to accomplish other than another service that Google's just going to kill off in six more weeks. Yeah, I, I think that would ultimately be the biggest concern is their reputation for kind of doing that. Admittedly, it's in it's in private beta now, which means it'll be in there for six years uh, before they go ahead and kill it. Uh, so that'll work mm -hmm. out quite nicely. Uh, yep. Speaking of which, I just migrated all my music off of Google Play Music, RIP Google Play Music. Uh, next up here, uh, Catalin Simpanu over at ZDNet doing the Lord's work reports that hackers published a list of plain text usernames, passwords, SSH server keys, and IP addresses for over 900 post-secure VPN enterprise servers. The list appears to have been compiled in late June 2020, and according to Bank Security, the list has been uh, seems to have been created by an attacker scanning the IPv4 internet address space as a whole for post servers running firmware with a document vulnerability, which was then accessed to gain info. The vulnerability was discovered last August, and 677 of the 900 in the dump still have not been patched. Tom, news or not? That's news. Patch your stuff. Seriously. I don't know why we have to keep saying this in the, the year of the pandemic and craziness, but come on, guys. You knew about it for almost a year. They scanned. They found it. They dumped your info. Oh, we don't know how this could have happened. I know. I know how this happens. <laughs> so, well, there's a reason why Shodan is a thing. And and the, uh, you know, particularly, you know, the numbers doesn't seem that in this grand scheme of, of hacks and stuff like that and, and, and these kind of disclosures, you know, 900 doesn't seem like that big of a number. But, you know, these are VPN enterprise servers that are kind of sitting on the edge and, and kind of managing access to large enterprise networks. They're particularly damaging uh, to have that kind of out in the open. Uh, next up here, Mozilla released Firefox 79 last week, which included a new feature called Enhanced Tracking Protection, designed to block against redirect tracking. This tracking technique has come uh, more commonly used as browsers began blocking third-party cookies, effectively redirecting a user who interacts with an ad to their own domain to drop a cookie, then reading them back to the original source as opposed to dropping it from a 
you be you become the first party at that point. Um, kind of a, a clever workaround, dare I say. The feature works by clearing all first party cookies every 24 hours for all known advertisers as a way to prevent the redirect technique. Tom, Firefox getting creative with uh, ad tracking, blocking news or not? I think it's news because it's basically Firefox sticking a, a standard in the ground and being like, guess what? We're not going to let you mess around with things anymore. So we we used to build web browsers to properly render pages and implement, you know, marquee tags and blink tags. And now we're basically building browsers to screw over ad providers. So <laughs> yay. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting, I wonder if this is a bit of an arms race for them in terms of, okay, we, we disabled this one thing, you know, Ad advertisers are going to, you know, to try and find different ways to track. I do wonder if they're going to have to keep just kind of chasing this thing. I'm glad that they're doing it uh, and giving people that choice um, as opposed to just kind of advertisers being sneaky with, with how they're doing it. Next up here, Google started rolling out Nearby Share, their answer to AirDrop uh, on Android. This feature is rolling across out across Pixel and Samsung Galaxy devices first and eventually across and, uh, newer Android. I think it's version 6.0 or later and Samsung Galaxy devices uh, I'm sorry, across Android and Chromebooks, excuse me. This will let users select files to share with an option to do so anonymously. And Nearby Share will then choose Bluetooth, Bluetooth Low Energy, WebRTC, or peer-to-peer Wi-Fi to share the file, just depending on uh, different factors, uh, latency, I'm sure distance also comes into it as well. AirDrop is one of those underappreciated features that keeps people hooked into iOS. Is Nearby Share's multi-protocol support news or not? Man, I don't know this okay great <laughs> you, like like that's like that that's the thing you're trying to replicate airdrop that's basically what you're trying to do i don't know very many people that use airdrop uh i i would say that that is a if you're in the mac or the apple ecosystem right where you're on a macbook you're you know you're using an ipad you're using that i mean that is if you need to get something off your phone and to work on it on another device that is the the only other way to do that if you're using like a Windows machine is like you upload it to Slack, Google Drive. Like it's yeah. it's it removes that kind of that friction. My concern would be, you know, Apple just kind of does it one way. They they do a weird combination. You know, they they use I think what is it uh, Bluetooth to make the connection and Wi-Fi for the actual transfer, or vice versa. They do yeah. use some sort of multi protocol. It's interesting because Google has to connect or is, is trying to connect to a wider range of devices. They don't know the exact specification on all these. I feel like this is this multi-protocol stuff is less about, Oh, we need to find the best thing for your, you know, your latency and your, your environmental factors and more like, well, what does this device actually support? And we're just going to try and throw mm -hmm. everything that we can at it to make sure it kind of works and doesn't fail. Yeah. See, I, I, I firmly believe that Apple has the, the, uh, here because it's a closed ecosystem it's ios connecting to mac os mm -hmm. that's easy to do this is going to fall apart real fast because this isn't going to work long term once once things start spiraling out of control yeah and uh, all someone needs to have is uh what one huawei device and i'm sure that'll that'll muck up everything then uh for for the end of that <laughs> exactly. somewhere somewhere someone with windows mobile is is very sad right now and finally, uh, the password manager LastPass launched an updated security dashboard and now gives an overview of all of your accounts, highlighting any passwords that could pose a security risk. Uh, the dashboard now also gives you a compromised uh, a score uh, based on that as well, just to kind of contextualize that. Although they don't, they're not exactly transparent as to like 
how you get like a you know a six versus a seven or something like that. At least it kind of shows you the relative risk uh, involved with that. But what's interesting is the dashboard is looking for compromised passwords proactively that appear on the dark web, uh, partnering with Enzoic's uh, compromised credential database, uh, similar to something like Have I Been Pwned, uh, which uh, one password uses, I believe, for kind of their search. Uh, but proactively looking on the dark web for compromised passwords. News or not here, Tom? This is good ultimately because it just prevents you from doing something stupid. Although, let's be fair, if you're using a password manager and you're not using the function to automatically generate a password and just paste it in, um, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice because let's let's be fair, the best password is one you don't even know. So uh, I just I like where they're going with this. I think it's going to help password hygiene in the future. I just I it's table stakes for password managers at this point, I think. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I do wonder, you know, uh, we have password managers, you know, uh, speaking of Google and Apple, they kind of have theirs baked into Chrome and, and iOS respectively. Mm -hmm. I do wonder how long it'll be till we see a partnership with one of them, uh, with one of these services. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to bet Google is doing something like that, although I, I don't think they're sending out notifications or anything like that. So I, I would be interested to see if any of those kind of first party ones uh, follow that approach as well. Yeah. Next up here, um, and, and have I been pwned, I guess, is getting bought, so maybe, you know, maybe there's acquisitions to be made in the future. First up here uh, for our discussion, though, uh, interesting story uh, coming out of Bloomberg. Um, we've we've talked about uh, we we talked about previously that uh, SoftBank uh, was looking to sell Arm, uh, that they had divested some things from Arm, kind of taking them back into SoftBank proper uh, to maybe try and lean it up and and make it a better acquisition target. And now we have reporting from Bloomberg that Nvidia is the only party in kind of concrete talks to actually buy Arm in a deal that's been reported to be worth around thirty two billion dollars. Um, or about one TikTok. SoftBank bought <laughs> Arm in 2016 for $31 billion. Um, so if that price holds up, not exactly getting uh, a huge return uh, four years later, which is interesting in and of itself. The sources say NVIDIA is the, uh, like I said, the only company kind of in in these, these concrete negotiations. In fact, Apple kind of came out and said, hey, uh, we're not going to be pursuing this because we would it would never pass regulatory muster, I would imagine. NVIDIA mostly yeah. makes uh, GPUs. It's kind of the, the uh, historically the bulk of their business. Uh, in terms of ARM processors, uh, their Tegra mobile chips are used in things like the NVIDIA Shield, the Nintendo Switch. Those are based on ARM designs. But they don't quite have the market share of someone like a Qualcomm or something like that that I think it immediately raises regulatory red flags here. Tom, I'm curious, though, is is that ARM mobile business the main would be the main motivator for NVIDIA or what do you see as driving uh, this potential acquisition by NVIDIA? A lot of, a lot of money to put up admittedly for a very valuable piece of IP. No, you're right. Um, here's the thing. I think, first of all, I think SoftBank's got to sell. Um, they took a, a massive black eye from the whole WeWork thing and they need cash. Mm -hmm. um, so th that's why the, the shit, the sale price doesn't look rosy. Um, but also who else is going to buy this? Intel doesn't want it. Everybody else is going to be mired in, in a mess. And NVIDIA has kind of been on a chipset tear for a while. I mean, they bought Mellanox. Um, I think what you're going to see, mobile is good. Like, I think that they're going to they're going to continue to develop the mobile arm stuff. But I think what you're actually going to see is they're going to start branching this across the enterprise. I think you're probably going to see, uh, you know, a, a big push for arm uh, infrastructure devices. I mean, you've got, okay, so now NVIDIA owns Mellanox. They can make chips. They own Cumulus. They can run the the uh, operating system, um, you know, maybe do an arm offload or something like that. I think that has a lot of potential. 
but I mean, when you look at everything else that's going on, when you look at the fact that Intel missed on their seven nanometer, that gives whoever has ARM a really big head start to kind of start displacing Intel in a lot of things. And, and, and mobile obviously is huge, but I don't think this is the, the end of the thing. Mobile's not worth $32 billion, but mobile being a cherry on top, I could see that. It, it certainly is a nice hedge. And uh, like, again, that's, we're, we're probably going to see that business, I mean, continue to grow, right, as, as or at least main, maintain a steady source of revenue uh, for ARM licenses and that kind of stuff, probably expand as we're seeing Apple and other companies try and make, uh, you know, more desktop applications for ARM, um, a thing on the consumer side, at least. But yeah, to me, this is all about cloud. And it is really interesting. You know, you mentioned Cumulus. Um, and uh, uh, if you look at their recent acquisitions, you know, NVIDIA is not a company that makes a ton of acquisitions, which is what made that Mellanox acquisition kind of really stand out. Again, uh, uh, you know, within the past year, they've already, in, you know, spent $7 billion um, to buy a pretty big piece of equipment. And so, you know, with Mellanox, they're getting kind of uh, that interconnect piece, um, which could, I think, see, to me, you, you said enterprise. To me, I see this as a as specifically a cloud play, uh, right? You have, where's the next big growth area for ARM? You have Amazon, Microsoft, Google basically all working on some version of ARM-based instances for the cloud. Turns out you need to buy a lot of chips, which require a lot of licenses to get that. Mm -hmm. um, and if that market takes off, now, admittedly, not a sure thing. Uh, but, you know, Amazon seems to be wanting to invest a lot of money into pursuing that. Uh, and if that takes off, they now have, uh, again, they have, um, you know, uh, an operating system. You have uh, SwiftStack, which is um, kind of uh, another cloud backend piece. You have Mellanox to kind of connect it all. And now you have the chips that are going to be running on there. Uh, to me, that's the play here for NVIDIA as they continue to transition firmly into being a data center company. Um, and also to hedge off, um, you know, more specialized chips. ARM still is a, uh, you know, a fairly general purpose chip, but can be customized, you know, kind of by design um, to be, to be, you know, uh, to have, you know, specific machine learning components or specific, uh, you know, be specific for applications. It doesn't just have to be a general purpose uh, uh, chip. So, yeah, to me, this, this screams uh, NVIDIA's after some of that sweet cloud money, for sure. All right, next up here. Interesting uh, uh, kind of situation going on here. So, uh, Tom, you're familiar with the the uh, uh, cloud backup provider Backblaze, correct? I am familiar, yeah. They put out amazing hard drive statistics from all of their uh, hard drives that they use for backups, and you can see which drives are reliable and stuff like that. I always love looking at that every year. But their B2 cloud uh, uh, storage service has been around for a while, and I think it's carved out a, a pretty healthy niche. Uh, with the SMB market, um, but it really hasn't been part of a larger enterprise buying. Uh, you know, if, if you're a, a large enterprise, you're not exactly looking th at that as your first choice or something like that. The company's made, though, some interesting moves to kind of change that narrative. And Tom, I'm curious about your thoughts about this. Backblaze recently launched S3 compliant APIs. So, you know, their storage can work with applications that enterprises might want to use. Now the company is offering uh, to pay AWS S3 egress fees if you migrate more than 50 terabytes and keep using their B2 storage for at least 12 months. Uh, Backblaze is seeing increased adoption with a reported 25% month-on-month storage growth. So, I mean, not exactly blockbuster numbers, but that is month-on-month. That's not even quarter-to-quarter. It's fairly, it seems like a decent clip of growth. Uh, but can like, this seems like a tactic that a cell phone provider uses to get you to switch. Is that going to be effective uh, you know, uh, whether we're looking at, you know, uh, SMEs or are we looking at larger enterprise cost is a like things, the, the cost of things is a weird thing in the enterprise, right? 
Yeah, like go go download any licensing document, and and what things cost is like a Rain Man sketch. It's like, well, how much does a, a, a used car cost? I don't know, a thousand dollars. How much does a Snickers bar cost? I don't know, a thousand dollars. Here's the thing. First of all, Bravo to Black Backblaze for recognizing that the the hard part of cloud is not doing it. The hard part of cloud is paying for it. And man, uh, AWS is a lot like an a la carte cafeteria mm -hmm. like hey that salad cost this much and those <laughs> packets of sugar cost this much and that bread roll cost this much um so solving some pain points but here's the thing folks if you're watching this pay attention if they're offering to pay for something that you would have to pay for they are making that money somewhere else so it's like it, kind of like you said with cell phone providers remember when you used to be able to get an iphone for 199 dollars if you sign up for a two-year contract do the math you're going to pay more than that phone is worth over the course of those two years. Why? Well, it turns out subsidizing things means that people stop looking at the cost. So if it's, you know, let's just say it's, we'll use round numbers here. It costs you $1,000 a year to uh, export data out of AWS, which is ridiculously low. And Backblaze is like, oh, well, we'll do it, but we'll only charge you, you know, like $50 a month or something like that. Um, and when you do all the math, maybe it works out and my math didn't work out, but let's just say that thousand dollars when it's broken down on a monthly cost, if they can absorb that and you're not paying two bills, but you're paying one slightly larger bill, you're not going to ask questions and Backblaze could be making a small fortune after they send all of the uh, money off to Amazon or, you know, and I, I hate to say it, but maybe they cut a deal with Amazon where they're going to pay less for egress fees because now it looks like Backblaze is paying all, you know, we we're going to export all the data from Backblaze. And now all of a sudden we're getting a, a price discount because we're transferring, you know, multiple terabytes. Yeah, I don't I, know if AWS would be willing to do that, but you know, I, I do wonder if also then, you know, uh, you know, a year or two later down the road, or they're already probably, if they're planning on this, they're already probably alpha or beta testing it at this point, that there would then be additional services, obviously on top of that, that they, Oh, since you're here, we might as well sell you some load balancing room, but you know, like, Mm -hmm. like any any anything uh or or some compute you know we we can offer that i do think again like cost is such a weird component in enterprise decision making like when i go to buy something usually the cost is like the first or second thing that i'm looking at like is it there how much does it cost and for enterprises that might especially when you get to a certain scale it is definitely not necessarily the first thing i mean they things are going to be expensive no matter what when you're operating at scale so uh, ease of use you know they're, they're making some benefits with obviously the s3 compliance is like like the most table stakes thing that they could have done and they've done that yeah. congratulations you know uh, happy to see that i think this is really more of of kind of going from that smb into that you know small to medium enterprise space i know that's sometimes some people think that's a distinction without a difference but i do think that there is a way to you know uh go go into a larger scale of business i don't think they're ever going to be you know, uh, I mean, I guess what is their competitor Wasabi at this, you know, like kind of where they're operating yeah. at in terms of, you know, um, performant online storage and that kind of stuff. It's an interesting move and, and certainly hitting at, you know, one of the most familiar pain points that a lot of organizations have. It, it almost reminds me of uh, uh, we do. I'm, I'm sure you have something similar, Tom, where you're at. One of our local grocery stores does like a fuel perks thing where if you spend like 20 bucks, mm -hmm. you get 10 cents off gas or whatever like that. And it's like if you do the yep. math, the five bucks that you saved filling up 
the one time because you spent a hundred dollars at the grocery store it doesn't make any sense but it it kind of does make you want to go like it feels good when you go to buy the gas and it's a little cheaper uh so i do wonder yeah. if that might be might be a little bit of the same phenomenon we will we'll see how successful they are with that how and also how long they keep that going because i am curious about you know if that's a loss leader or something something a little bit more sophisticated yeah. And, then, and then finally here, uh, we got um, major earnings. Now, there were the big hearings on uh, Capitol Hill about the you know big tech antitrust hearings uh, that happened uh, over a week ago now. Uh, again, that's kind of, you know, we, we could do a whole show about that. It also isn't directly related to the enterprise. They didn't really talk about like cloud and that kind of stuff. Also, Microsoft wasn't there. Very weird. But it caused everyone to delay their earnings till after that because I didn't think they all wanted to show that they made bags and bags of cash as they were talking to senators about why they're not too big but we do now have earnings for aws microsoft and google or alphabet and we have some clarity over where their cloud figures are i always think it's interesting to look at this um all three major cloud providers saw revenue increases on the year but interestingly across the board azure aws gcp we're seeing growth slowing now this has been a trend for over two years now with amazon uh, and that's certainly continued. This is their ninth consecutive decrease in growth um, uh, with now gro- AWS revenue growing 29%. Nothing to sneeze at, certainly, uh, but it's the first time it's been under 30%. And uh, actually, it accounted for 1% less of the company's overall revenue uh, than it did uh, on the year. So I, I think that's interesting that it's becoming uh, less. I mean, that, that to me is very significant. I know it's only 1%, 13 to 12%. That's still kind of a big deal. Now, they did still generate over $10 billion in revenue. They accounted for like over 50% of Amazon's profit. Amazon's fine. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. But we're now seeing this with also with Azure decreasing from 59% growth to 47% growth and GCP slowing from 52 to 43% uh, quarter over quarter. So it's not just, you know, previously the narrative has been Amazon's the biggest. They, of course, they're going to slow down. They have the biggest lead. This, this just shows that the cloud market is... Uh, maturing everybody else has so much room to catch up they can keep growing at these crazy numbers tom everyone is like kind of the narrative i think with uh everybody working from home with COVID is that we're all turning to the cloud we're all turning to SaaS apps in that environment where seemingly everyone is using the cloud for for work and and everything else more often why are we still i guess are you surprised to see those revenue numbers the growth on those slowing down across the board basically I'm not surprised to see the growth slowing down because who else is going to go to cloud at this point? It's, it's the same argument that we had all those years ago when everybody wanted to go out and start their own cell phone store. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. What are you going to do when everybody has a cell phone? Well, that's why we you know, now we have yearly cell phone releases as opposed <laughs> to waiting every couple of years. But ultimately, yes, we are driving more cloud adoption because people are working from home because people are doing a lot more with, um, you know, getting applications are going cloud first. We're not trying to do things on premises. In fact, look at the way that data sitting your, yeah. If you think being off 1% on your cloud growth is bad, look at what it's getting cost for like on-premises data center stuff. The, the, the growth numbers on that are going down significantly mm-hmm. because people are moving to cloud, but as they move more things to cloud, they need to move less things. Sure. They're still going to consume cloud servers, cloud, things like that. But now we're starting to get into that thing. A good example of this is Corey Quinn with the DuckBill group. His job is to go out and reduce your AWS bill by tweaking things, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're spending less money in the cloud, that looks like growth reduction. When in fact, what you're doing is you're just using the cloud you have more efficiently. So I think what will happen is, is that this is just, this is the start of the contraction of the rubber band a little bit. So we were doing this 
And now we've done this. Are we going to do this? Or are we going to go back to here? We don't know. A lot of it's going to depend on how people decide to build things. And I don't see cloud slowing down. But I also don't see like massive amounts of people rushing to the cloud like we have in the past. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic. That's yeah, a really good point about uh, also the, the the business pressures of operating in a pandemic, I'm sure, are causing everyone, even as cloud use, you know, the, the usage of the cloud, your, you know, your users that are using Zoom calls and stuff like that is increasing um, for the, yeah, for exactly uh, trying to use things more efficiently it is it is not just a, a, hey, this is in our roadmap for a year from now. It's like, hey, we need to save some money so we can keep the lights on. Let's figure out how we can reduce that AWS bill, I'm sure is an imperative for a lot more businesses. The other side of it is that there are also, you know, we mentioned, um, you know, uh, uh, SoftBank and, and some of their investments that haven't worked out. One of them is their investment with Uber and basically any ride hailing or anything like that has also seen a massive decrease in the amount of cloud uses that they're using. Those are giant customers as well. Uh, I'm sure, you know, that's just the one most top of mind. I'm sure there are a lot of businesses when you're talking about event, uh, uh, you know, any kind of event industry, uh, travel industry, that kind of stuff. All of those are, I'm sure, are all built on AWS or the cloud, or I'm sure a lot of them are. Maybe not the airlines. They're all mm -hmm. based on weird IBM databases from the 60s. But <laughs> the, <laughs> it's true. Uh, the yeah. so so, but a lot of those obviously have a lot of decreased spend as well as those industries are are pretty you know pretty dried up at the moment. Um, so I I do think that also plays into it as well, and and just also that the value of a I guess maybe this shows that the value of expanding your use of the cloud is worth less to these companies in terms of revenue than bringing in new customers, and that ultimately, you know, kind of to your point, Tom, that we've reached a little bit of a saturation point where it's like everyone has a little bit of cloud. Yes, they may have expand, expanded it significantly or faster than they had planned to, um, but very few people are like, oh, yeah, we should think about the cloud now, like for the first time. Um, I don't think there's a lot of and one thing, brand, brand new customers. And one thing I will say about that specific point, and I'm going to reference something that's happened a, a few years ago. If your numbers, if your stock price, if your um, metrics are driven by growth, and growth slows because all growth slows. That I mean, trees can only be 460 feet high because of gravity. You can't fight that. If you use growth as your metric and you have to keep driving growth, that's when you get into the situation that Wells Fargo found itself in where you have to keep driving growth by doing really shady crap. So this maybe is a word of caution for the wonks on Wall Street. Stop using these metrics to drive stock prices rather than inventing something and saying, oh, well, you know, growth is unlimited. Don't do that. Like, it's like saying, well, this car is the best. It goes the fastest in the shortest amount of time. Yeah. Until you have to haul a couch, then a Lamborghini becomes a really horrible car. <laughs> stop using you stop using the wrong metrics to measure things. And I promise you, yeah, stock price may need to be adjusted over time, but you'll find out that the company will be a whole lot healthier. Yeah, it won't be trying to yeah kind of cannibalize itself to keep itself going uh, uh, long term. I you know I you know again just to emphasize like AWS they did uh, it is interesting they did misanalyze expectations again that all goes back to weird financial chicanery that I don't even under pretend to understand. Uh, but they do drive a, just still a tremendous amount of profit for AWS. I don't think that even if growth eventually you know slows even more significantly than we've seen over the past two years 
I don't think that changes for them. That's just a, just a very high profit business um, overall. I'm assuming yeah. it's the same way for uh, Azure and GCP as well. Um, and so, yeah, to your to your point, revenue growth is is great to see again to to get your stock buyback at some point and make a ton of money uh, when you're some some weird trader. Um, yeah. Functionally, though, for these businesses. Uh, I think they're only becoming more essential and and more important to businesses, and ultimately that is, I think, in the long term, much more important uh, than you know what percentage their revenue grew in one quarter in an unprecedented time <laughs> in history. So, uh, so, uh, but still, when these numbers come out, I do think it's interesting to kind of parse the tea leaves because we don't get a lot of visibility into other aspects of their business, and they are so kind of important to the modern enterprise. So, uh, always worth talking about. Yeah. All right, Tom. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find more of your great stuff if they're so inclined? Um, you can check me out at gestaltit.com. It's the best place to find some of the uh, most recent writing that I've been doing. In fact, I just published an article about some of the uh, latest announcements from Arcus. It's Black Hat Week, so I've got a lot of Black Hat briefings coming up, and uh, we will definitely be trying some of those out uh, and, and uh, updating you more on what's going on there. All right, and you can find my writing at gestaltit.com as well. You can also find my uh, video essay series, Checksum, at youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo. New episodes come out every Monday, so keep an eye open for that. Maybe something to do with NVIDIA and ARM uh, this week. Kind of a follow-up on our look at uh, why they bought Mellanox, kind of following on our discussion here, Tom. Uh, always good stuff, so looking forward to putting that together. Until next week, uh, we'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the IT News of the Week. Until then, for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. <laughs>